Chapter thirty six of Mrs. Balfame by Gertrude Horne Atherton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Lynn Thompson. Chapter thirty six. It was nearly six o'clock. The courtroom with its round white ceiling looked like a crypt in the soft glow of the artificial light, and the judge in his black silk gown, with his handsome patrician face, clean cut but rather soft and flushed with good living might have been an abbot seated aloft in judgment upon a recalcitrant nun. Mrs. Balfame, in her crape, completed the delusion, if the imaginative spectator glanced no further. The district attorney, who was summing up, looked more like a wasp than ever as he darted back and forth in front of the jury-box, shouting and shaking his fists. Occasionally he would hook his fingers in his waistcoat, balance himself on his heels, and with a mere moderation of his rasping tones, demonstrate a contemptuous face in the strength of his case. It is to be admitted that his arguments and expositions, his denunciations and satirical refutations, were quite as convincing as those of the counsel for the defence had been, such being the elasticity of the law and of the legal mind, but although an able and powerful speaker, he lacked the personal charm and magnetism, the almost tragical enthusiasm and conviction, alternating with cold, deliberate logic, that had thrilled all present to the roots of their beings during the long hours of the morning. Rush, whether he lost or won, had made his reputation as one of the greatest pleaders ever heard at the bar of New York State. He had finished at a quarter to one. Immediately after the opening of the afternoon session, Gore had darted into the breach, speaking with a dramatic rapidity for four hours. He sat down at six o'clock, and Mrs. Balfame felt as if turning to stone while the judge, standing, charged the jury and expounded the law covering the three degrees of murder, first, second, manslaughter. It was their privilege to convict the prisoner at the bar of any of these, unless convinced of her innocence. He dwelt at length upon the degree called manslaughter, as if the idea had occurred to him that Mrs. Balfame, justly indignant, had run out when she had heard her husband's voice raised in song, and had fired from the grove by way of administering a rebuke to an erring and inconsiderate man. The second bullet had been made much of by Rush, as indicating that two people, possibly two gunmen, had shot at once, but the district attorney held no such theory, and had ignored the bullet found in the tree. It was apparent, however, that the judge had given to this second bullet a certain amount of judicial consideration. The jury filed out, not to their luxurious quarters in the Paradise City Hotel a mile away, but to a stark and ugly room in the courthouse, where they must remain in acute discomfort until they arrived at a verdict. The judge had his dinner brought to him in a private room adjoining theirs, and even the reporters and spectators snatched a hasty meal at the Dobton hostelry, so sure were they all that the jury would return within the hour. Mrs. Balfame did not take off her hat with its heavy veil, but sat in her quarters at the jail with several of her friends, outwardly calm, but with her mind on the rack, and unable to share the dinner sent over from the inn by Mr. Cummock for herself and her guests. The hours passed, however, and the jury did not return. Once the head of the foreman emerged, and the sheriff, misunderstanding his surly demand for a pitcher of ice water, rushed over for Mrs. Balfame, 
the judge was summoned and the reporters men and women raced one another up the courthouse stairs mrs balfame schooled to the awful ordeal of hearing herself pronounced a murderess in one form or other but bidden by her friends to augur an acquittal from a mere three hours deliberation walked in with her usual quiet remoteness and took her seat she was sent back at once rush paced the road in front of the courthouse he had little hope he had studied their faces day by day and believed that several at least were persuaded of mrs balfame's guilt mrs battle mrs gifning and mrs cummock sat with mrs balfame who found the effort to maintain the high equilibrium demanded by her admiring friends as rasping an ordeal to her nerves as waiting for that final summons whose menace grew with every hour the jury wrangled finally she took off her hat and suggested that they knit and the needles clicked through the desultory conversation until after midnight they all attempted to sleep the judge extended himself on a sofa in the private room devoted to his use he dared not leave the courthouse he told the district attorney who told it to the sheriff who told it to the reporters that the jury quarrelled so persistently and so violently that he found it impossible to sleep and that the language they used was appalling midnight came and passed the sob sisters worn out went home miss sarah austin and miss alice crumley had not returned to the courthouse after dinner the sheriff appeared at the entrance of the courtroom and announced that the last trolley would leave for elsinore and neighboring towns within five minutes most of the spectators filed sleepily out a few of mrs balfame's less intimate but equally devoted friends remained in their seats near her empty chair and shortly after midnight the warden's wife brought them over hot coffee and sandwiches the reporters having long since consumed all the chocolate and peanuts on sale below strolled back and forth between the courthouse and the bar of the dobton inn they were bored and indignant and sought the only consolation available they returned periodically to the courtroom growing as the hours passed more formal polite silent one lost his way in the jury box and was steered by a court official to the sympathetic haven of his brothers the room itself its floor littered with tin foil peanut shells and newspapers its tables and chairs out of place looked like a coney island excursion boat finally two reporters laid their heads down on a table and went to sleep but the rest continued to address one another at long intervals in distant tones obeying the laws of etiquette but with a secret and scornful reluctance broderick who was reasonably sober had wandered in and out many times occasionally he walked the road with rush and more than once he had endeavored to get miss crumley on the telephone he had even telephoned to the hospital to ascertain if she were there a week ago only he had accidentally discovered that dr anna had been summoned by mrs balfame shortly after the murder and had passed many hours alone with her it being the deuce and all to extract any information from that closed corporation of mrs balfame's friends broderick had surprised it out of a group at the elks club in the course of conversation and then had set his phenomenal memory to work with the result that he was convinced alice crumley held the key to the whole situation he had gone to her house and pleaded with her to take him out to the hospital and obtain a statement from the sick woman before it was too late representing in powerful and picturesque language the awful peril to rush 
I've reason to know, he had concluded, that Cummock and two or three others have their suspicions, and there isn't a question that if the jury brings in a verdict of guilty in any degree, and they're a pig-headed lot, Rush will be arrested at once. These devoted friends of Mrs. Balfame have accumulated enough evidence to begin on. He may have gone to Brooklyn that night, but he was seen to get off the train at Elsinore about a quarter of an hour before the shooting. They've been doing a lot of quiet sleuthing, but if Mrs. Balfame is acquitted, they'll let him off. They don't want any more scandal, and they like him anyhow. But I have a hunch she won't be acquitted, and then, innocent or guilty, there'd be no saving him. So for heaven's sake, stir yourself. But Alice had replied, I have besought my aunt, and she will not permit Dr. Anna to be disturbed. She says her only chance for life is a tranquil mind, and that the shock of hearing that Enid Balfame was on trial for murder would kill her, let alone asking her to do her best to send her to the chair. I've done my best, but it seems hopeless. This conversation had taken place on Thursday. Today was Tuesday. They were very reticent at the hospital, but he had reason to believe that Dr. Anna had taken a turn for the worse. Could Alice Crumley be out there, and could she have taken that minx Sarah Austin with her? It would be just like a girl to go back on a good pal like himself, and hand a signal triumph over to another girl, who would get out of the game the minute some fellow with money enough offered to marry her. He ground his teeth. He was standing near the doors of the courtroom and staring at the clock whose hands pointed to a quarter to one. Suddenly he heard his name called from below. He sauntered out and leaned over the balustrade. A weary page was ascending when he caught sight of the star reporter. "'Brabant Hospital wants you on the phone,' he announced with supreme indifference. Broderick leaped down the winding stair and into the booth. It seemed to him that his very ears were quivering as he listened to Alice Crumley's faint, agitated voice. "'Come out quickly and bring a stenographer,' it said. "'And suppose you ask Mr. Rush to come too. Just tell the sheriff to, to postpone things a bit if the jury should be ready to come in before you return. Hurry, Jim, hurry!' End of chapter 36